Welcome to Leveling the Playing Field, a podcast featuring women who work in sport. I'm Bobby Sue Doyle Hazard, and I'm so happy that you're here with me this week again. One of the women who was on my initial list of, oh my God, I got to get her on the pod is on today. Her name's Janet Marie Smith. She's the Senior VP of Planning and Development for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And her background is as an architect um, and urban planner. So I'll tell you a little bit more about her in a second, um, but I'm so excited. And it, it just, I just want to take a moment and acknowledge that we're almost at a year. Can you believe it? We've been doing this for almost a year. And I think it's sometime next month, I will find a date and that shall be the birthday. <laughs> um, but you know, it just makes me reflect on how fortunate I am that these women have taken the time to speak with us and me in particular and share their stories and um, also how grateful I am to all of you and, um, you know, you listening and and giving me feedback and and having conversations with me. So thank you to all of you. Um, we had a couple of people join in on the Shia's Challenge last week. So here is your little reminder that you should be watching a women's athletic event, whether it's on TV, on your phone, in person. We like in person a lot. Um, take a picture of it and then throw it up on the social media tag at LTPF pod on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. And then use the hashtag SheIsChallenge. And um, you'll be in the running for a little giveaway goodie box basket thing. <laughs> we'll figure out what it is. But we had a few more people do it this week. So that was exciting. And I hope that uh, more of you do so. This week, you have until the end of July. So we're counting down the days now. And yeah, so now let me tell you a little bit about Janet Marie Smith. So her background is in architecture and What's really cool about her is that she did not start in sports. In fact, um, she had no sports experience. She had previously worked on Battery Park City Authority, you know, on that uh, design and um, planning. She had been with another um, management association that was dealing with uh, planning of a, a big um, development in LA, and then she saw an opening. Um, she saw that the Orioles were planning on building a brand new ballpark, and um, and and the story goes that she just sent in her resume and um, contacted Larry Lucchino, and eventually ended up getting hired. And she's the driving force behind um, that Camden Yards ballpark when it you know first started. Um, she was then with the Atlanta Braves, um, helped turn the Olympic Stadium into Turner Field. Um, she did a couple things around Phillips Arena. And, um, and then, to my blessed heart, she went up to Boston and helped with the renovation of Fenway. And um, she's just been a, an integral part in so many of these ballparks, histories, and as a woman um, who's an architect and then one in sports. Um, and, you know, of course her role is really bigger than being an architect. She really does a lot of the planning and um, you know, of the, of everything with it. It's not just, you know, the architecture piece, but she's been so integral. And um, you know, now she's with the Dodgers. She's helped 
with renovations with their stadium, but also with their property in the Dominican. And she talks about how, how important that project has been for her. So this is a really great conversation. Um, Janet Marie is just, you know, lovely. And um, I think she's got some good nuggets for you all in there. And uh, I'm just really proud that I was able to get her on. (laughs) So um, I really, really hope you enjoy this interview with Janet Marie Smith. Hi, Janet Marie. Hi, Bobby Sue. <laughs> I have to tell you that you were one of the first women that immediately popped into my head as, oh my gosh, I need to get her for the podcast. Um, when, no, I'm flattered. <laughs> when uh, it, it popped up because you're you're kind of in a, a dual male-dominated industry, it, that being the architecture part, and then in sports. <laughs> well, that's true. Or, or look at it through a construction lens, and I, it seems like it gets more narrow, not broader, but yeah. I keep hoping that will change too. <laughs> um, I usually start by asking, um, and so I'll ask you this as well, how did you fall in love with sports? Well, my interest in sports was, I think, born out of the fact that it's such a reflection of our culture. And as a student of cities in particular, I've always been interested in uh, and how cities um, rally around their sports and the place it has in our sort of communal life and in crossing uh, social lines, economic lines, language barriers. There, there, there are all kinds of things about sports that make it a common language for us. And um, the urban planner in me, I guess, got fixated on the way baseball in particular was such a reflection of the city around it. And uh, my interest in working in baseball was really um, solidified when I heard the Orioles were going to move into downtown Baltimore and wanted to be a part of the urban community and wanted to use the ballpark as a part of the revitalization of downtown Baltimore. And I had known about Baltimore's focus on its waterfront, the convention center, the children's museum, the science museum, its use of these kind of gathering places as a way of redefining downtown. But it had not occurred to me that sports could be a part of that. So I really got into sports through a very different door than sports. Uh, But that's what got me into baseball. Did you um, did you play sports when you were growing up? I swam, and I guess I did enough recreational sports to count for a little basketball, a little soccer here and there. But I was I did not play. Uh, I didn't do anything. Uh, I didn't do anything in college, uh, and uh, so it wasn't a love of the of the sports that got me into the baseball business. It was a love of cities. Sure. Um, your father was an architect, correct? Or is an architect? He was. Yes, that's right. Um, was he an architect that focused on urban planning as well, or was he a different kind of architect? Well, my dad really enjoyed working on civic buildings, courthouses, um, hospitals, um, uh, post offices, you know, anything in the, in the public domain, I think was always of greater interest to him. Uh, than than private commissions. He he did work on buildings. Uh, You know, I'm sure there are 
like many architects, I'm sure he did some, some planning in there too, but uh, most of the work that I'm familiar with are, are buildings that he, he designed. And I went to architecture school, uh, but somewhere kind of late in my schooling, probably towards fourth or fifth year of architecture school, I realized that I didn't want to practice traditionally, that I wanted to be in a position where I could use my knowledge of architecture, my ability to speak that language, uh, and help shape what cities would become. And by then I had lived a summer or two in New York and in Washington, and I understood the power of zoning and the power of uh, the, the public sector in defining what went on and the power of the private sector. You know, the, by, by the time a city planning commission had put zoning restrictions on a site and a developer had come in and layered on their financial and programmatic requirements, uh, many of the decisions that we are trained to think of in architecture schools being architectural decisions, well, they're already made. And so my idea was to back up in the process, not that I really knew what that meant, but those <laughs> were the words I used, um, and be in a position where I could help shape what the program was, how things fit into the city, how you would design zoning regulations to support that, how you would design transit systems and roadways and parking garages to support that so that there was an opportunity to make a city better and more interesting by virtue of how you handled the front end things. Um, and so I was very lucky to have worked right after school on um, a big mixed use development in New York, Battery Park City, which had office housing, uh, retail, and importantly, a waterfront esplanade and city parks. And uh, many, many aspects of it were about the communal qualities of a development and what what makes a place feel like a civic space and what makes people want to use those spaces. So I think uh, um, the sort of natural evolution of my interest into how sports and in particular baseball could play that role um, in redefining a former industrial city like Baltimore was what really got me interested in, in baseball in particular and Baltimore uh, even more particularly. <laughs> well, yeah, you're, you've been uh, living in Baltimore ever since. <laughs> I have. I didn't expect that either, but it's been a wonderful <laughs> place to call home. So um, when I was doing some research, I noticed, so is architectural school a six-year program usually? It's typically either uh, either a five-year program or a six-year program or a master's, three-year master's coupled with an undergraduate degree. It really, they, there are many ways to get their professional degree, but uh, mine was a, a five-year program at Mississippi State. And then I had a chance to get my master's in urban planning while I was in New York at City College. When... Um when you were choosing Mississippi State, you're from Jackson, Mississippi, correct? Was that yes. was that you know why you stayed in? I think in state? it chose me. I, no, I think it chose me. I don't think I had any real burning desire to go to architecture school. Though it might seem that way since my dad um, was an architect, but I think I you know the schools in Mississippi. I was just raised knowing I was going to go to college and. Um, I, I suppose we considered in-state to be um, to be a logical thing, and probably in large part because of the favorable tuition. And I felt Mississippi State was a better fit for me than uh, the other uh, schools there. And uh, they happened to offer an architecture degree. And I was interested in both engineering and arts. And my dad had said, well, why don't you go spend a day on campus and visit the art school and visit the engineering school and see what you think. And um, 
I did that. And uh, he said, well, I'll pick you up at the architecture, architecture school at the end of the day. So I spent the morning at the art school and it seemed pretty staid uh, and they were drawing still life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then I went to the engineering school and um, it wasn't exactly hopping either. They were doing lots and lots of, um, of, of, of problems with statics and, um, and structural uh, engineering. And uh, then I went over to the architecture school to meet my dad, who was about three hours late picking me up. <laughs> but by the time he got there, I had um, I had seen maybe what he intended for me to see all along, which was that it was a wonderful combination of both. Uh, but importantly, it had life, energy, and people who had a, a feeling for all the things I, I really cared about. Uh, so it um, it ended up being a, a, a wonderful pursuit for me. Even though I've, my my career has been a very uh, non traditional career, yeah, and you know I don't think I prior to getting into sports really thought much about architecture um, in terms of like I, I understood basics of like construction. My my stepfather was in construction. He's a a chimney repairman and mason, and you know so I got that, but that you know, before all that happens, I didn't really understand. And then, um, once I started working where I work now and there's constant renovations going on and really like, you know, digging into some of the new stadiums, some of the new ballparks. Um, and it's just fascinating to me how the ideas come to people. It's and it's so different from how I think, and I think that that's why it fascinates me so much. Well, I think it's also we see it in sports. I think it's true in higher education. It's true in hospitals. It's true in government. That buildings are living things; they don't stand still. And just because you've constructed one doesn't mean that that's the end of it. It's uh, it's no different than someone living in a home and sort of constantly having an idea about. Maybe a new porch on the backyard, or maybe a, you know, maybe a a new balcony off of the front. I think we are are constantly looking at our buildings and at a as a way of how we can stay current with our with our audience. Um, and uh, schools probably have a harder job than anyone because they have a ever changing audience, and they're always trying to stay ahead of how they uh, they they stay youthful as their student body. Uh, but I think we've learned to mirror that in sports too, and we're always looking uh, not only at what the latest trends are, but at how to keep our audience. Um, and then, in, in particular, I think baseball has uh, tried to take advantage of the fact that it's one of the, it's the few, one of the few, if not the only, uh, spectator sport uh, other than golf that doesn't have a clock, and so the sort of wonderful leisurely pace of baseball that is attractive to many people also requires uh, spending it a little bit differently and thinking about how you use the time for a younger generation that's grown up with lots of doing three things at once. And so even though Camden Yards opened in an era that marked the change from a multi-purpose stadium to single purpose baseball venues and Importantly, the venues that were a part that were scripted to be a part of an urban renaissance. 
uh, I think this next generation as they uh, as they evolve into whatever their future is, is looking at how they can become more social and more communal in their approach so that they're a place where people want to be uh, with family, with friends. Uh, and it's about the atmosphere, not just about the sport itself. Sure. Um, you're, and there's so much that you just said that will unpack. Um, you, you getting into sports was, um, I, I think you've called it a happy accident. Um, do, can you tell the story about how you got the job for, you know, helping with that planning and um, construction? Yeah, sure. Well, I was living in Los Angeles and working on a project that wasn't wasn't moving very quick, and um, I was frustrated by the pace of it and um, wanted to move back to the East Coast. And so, uh, finding a job on the East Coast was certainly, you know, a, not just part of the program; it was the, the main criteria. Uh, and I, I guess, I felt like I had by then focused on the fact that I love projects. I liked projects more than I liked jobs. If you can uh, sort of parse the distinction, I enjoyed working on something uh, that had a beginning, a middle and an end, and you saw the result of it. Mm -hmm. And I like being able to focus on one thing and really think, uh, you know, just uh, holistically about everything from the site planning to the mix of uses to the graphic design and, you know, all the steps in between. So, uh, while I had some job offers in New York to go back to New York City and work on um, a number of different, um, for a number of different developers, I was talking to two different developers, and I thought that seemed like a reasonable and, I don't know if it was a secure career choice, but it seemed like a reasonable career choice. But I just felt like maybe I had one more professional fling in me before I settled down. That was the way I thought of it. And I had um, heard that the Orioles were planning to move downtown. And at first I thought, oh, that's such a bummer. I loved Memorial Stadium and it felt like such an old shoe, comfortable park. Um, but then I had this eureka moment that like, oh, there goes Baltimore. One more thing to put in its, uh, in its arsenal of things to draw people to the city. And not just tourists to the city, but city residents to the urban center. So I wrote first to the Maryland Stadium Authority, who I learned was uh, going to fund the project. And the executive director uh, at the time, Chris Delaporte, called me after he got my letter. And uh, this was before email, this was in the <laughs> late 80s. And he called me and said, you know what, you'd be perfect for this job, but you really should work for the Orioles. They're the ones who are going to be in control of the design. And so I reshaped my letter and I wrote it to Larry Lucchino, who was president and CEO of the Orioles. And um, as they say, the rest is history. But I will fill in the blanks a little bit because when I spoke to Larry, um, he, um, he was intrigued by the idea of having someone on his staff who was you know, a thousand percent devoted to this project as opposed to another consultant that was uh, managing it along with other things. Um, and I, I don't think he imagined that anyone would want, would want to take a job that had a three-year lifespan and leave. But it, like I said, it didn't bother me. I was uh, not, not sure where my career path was going anyway. And when I came to interview with Larry, after we had a you know forty five minute talk or so, he said, "Well, 
could you take some time and look at the plans that have been done today and then let's talk again. And it was a wonderful chance for me to review both the master plan that RTKL was working on and the early schematic drawings that HOK was producing and then have a conversation with Larry about those things so that we we were both able to test, um, of course, I was the one really being tested, mm-hmm. <laughs> able to test whether or not, you know, my ability to look at these things and to dissect what they said and to help him interpret how he wanted to shape and influence that um, and how what role I could play in that. And so it was a, it was, um, it was a wonderful it, um, I, I think, I, you know, I, I guess history will be the judge, but it was a wonderful chance for, it was a wonderful way for him to conduct the interview because it gave us a chance to talk, not just about uh, my, my past work or how I might approach the project, but to, you know, to give him a little, a little test case of how I would look at what I had seen and how I could help him interpret that. And um, it has been a wonderful, you know, uh, few decades working for Larry. I've, I've had the pleasure of working for him again after we opened Oriole Park at Camden Yards when he became president CEO of the Boston Red Sox. And the primary goal of their ownership was to renovate Fenway. It's what made them different from the other contenders to buy the club. So. Um, I, I loved that project just as much as I loved the creation of Camden Yards. It's like saving, um, you know, saving an old lady from the break. There are, um, from some of the stories that I read, there are a couple of different parts of your hiring and then approach with Camden Yards that I either laughed at or just loved. Um, one part was that you almost didn't even get in front of Larry. Um, and that at first your resume had kind of been put to the side. Um, and then the second one. Yeah, I had actually gotten a, I'd actually gotten a letter from the HR director saying thank you, but no thank you. So um, I just simply ignored that. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that everybody got a letter like that. So I wasn't any different. Um, and I, of course, I knew they didn't have a, the job posted. I wasn't applying for a posted position. I was looking to create a position. Um, so I, you know, once I got Larry on the phone and maybe I uh, called him at a time when he was feeling particularly frustrated <laughs> with what was going on or bewildered or uh, excited or I don't know, pick any number of, uh, <laughs> of ways of describing what his mood might have been, but he just felt like talking about the project and uh, and so did I. So, you know, it was a, a, a wonderful conversation and sort of series of questions and challenges from him. Uh, and and I, I do remember his questions being very challenging, like, like, how would you do this? How would you make this work? How would you manage this? But um, I had already, you know, given that thought, I, I thought the obvious thing to do was go move right into the middle of it. And, uh, just, uh, that, that, that was, that would be my job would be to manage whatever it took from working with, uh, the Maryland stadium authority and, uh, the urban planners and their architects and contractors to working with the team to ferret out from each of the different departments, the kinds of, uh, 
expectations and um, and aspirations they had for the ballpark and balancing uh, what were sometimes competing objectives and helping build public consensus for what we were doing and helping to shape not only the ballpark, but fans' expectations for the ballpark. Um, one of his challenges to you, one of his very first questions, uh, was one of the stories that made me laugh because of how you responded. Do you remember the question I'm thinking about? I do. <laughs> do you mind sharing? Gary asked me. <laughs> I, I don't mind sharing at all. So we had talked about, you know, baseball parks and city building and how the two could fit together and uh, the various roles that all the parties played and uh, putting together something this complex and had had a very hearty discussion on all those points, but we hadn't talked any baseball. And I think it suddenly dawned on him that, you know, I better know something about baseball so that I didn't just totally embarrass myself or worse the team. Uh, and so he said, well, I need to ask you this question. And I paused for a minute and he said, um, which league has the designated hitter? <laughs> uh, and uh, as, uh, as he describes the answer, this part I'm, fuzzy on myself here that I said, well, I'm insulted by the question, but I answered the question because I understood his point. Of course, <laughs> you can't just go diving into this without some knowledge and appreciation for why 3 million fans a year might want to come to this place. Right. No, oh, I loved reading that and just being like, yep, of course. <laughs> of course, that was a question. Um, well, you know, it, listen, it makes sense, especially, you know, given times and you were a relative unknown, right? Um, well, absolutely. I wouldn't say a relative unknown. <laughs> I wasn't unknown. And I, you know, maybe I still am too. You know, it's hard to sort of know where you fit into these these things. I think I was um, lucky enough to be in a, you know, in a city that embraced this kind of urbanism and a, and a baseball club and Larry Lucchino who wanted to make a change and wanted to think differently about ballparks, uh, both a city and, uh, and, a and a president, um, and Larry that wanted to create something that was about modern times, but that harkened back to sort of the best of historic, um, and contextual references. And all of that just fit together. And I've often said that had uh, Governor William Donald Schaefer, who had once been mayor of Baltimore, not been such a rabid um, fan and advocate for downtown Baltimore, and had Larry Lucchino not had this vision for hearkening back to Forbes, Ebbets, Fenway, the older parts that were sort of of the neighborhood, all of this could have just not jived. You know, they, the fact that, that, that they both in their own way and from their own perspectives cared so much about this ballpark fitting into this downtown site made it just a, a, a real joy to come up with answers to that program. And it was um, a, a particular pleasure to work with Joe Spear at HOK, who, uh, who was equally interested and thinking about this afresh and thinking about how this could be applied to the major leagues. Um, you know, or HOK had been um, the architect uh, that had worked on Kansas City, uh, one of the few other single purpose baseball parks that existed at the time. Um, I guess the only others other than the older, uh, you know, Wrigley, uh, Fenway, Comiskey, 
in Tiger Stadium would have been Dodger Stadium. And at the time, Anaheim, I don't think football had yet moved into Anaheim, but uh, that's a different story. We'll think about that later. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, Joe had worked on a minor league park in uh, Buffalo that was very much um, of the same kind of uh, attitude and approach. And so I think their, their firm and he in particular welcomed this challenge as, as much as Larry Lucchino and Governor Schaefer did. And then, of course, Herb Belgrad and um, and uh, and Bruce Hoffman, who were at the Maryland Stadium Authority, uh, wanted nothing more than to make this great. And so they really um, they really led with the most important thing about this project, which was to make it a, a wonderful civic statement. And I think we all we just all shared that. Uh, and as Larry Lucchino is often quoted as saying. None of us set out to change baseball. We set out to build a great park for downtown Baltimore, one that would be home for the Baltimore Orioles for, you know, a, a generation or two or three. And the fact that it changed the way baseball approached the design of their parks and approached their relationship with cities was uh, was a, a, the most fabulous uh, of outcomes. But we didn't go out setting out to change the world. We set out to make this a great place for Baltimore. Yeah, I've, you know, I've always liked Camden Yards um, because it does remind me um, of Fenway in ways. And being from Massachusetts, Fenway is my church. And um, having been there and then reading some of the stories, you know, you, you wanting to keep that warehouse and like the aesthetic of it and um, and the the different little touches and and just making it kind of like the heart of this downtown area. It's just so interesting to me and very much, I think, of how I think of a great baseball city, right? And again, I think this is because I'm biased um, with Fenway, but... Um, you know, I always thought that was such a cool little area to be down in, in uh, Baltimore. And whenever I have to be in the Baltimore area and we're not actually in that inner Harbor area, I get very confused. <laughs> I'm like, this isn't really Baltimore. Baltimore is where the baseball city, baseball stadium is. Um, and well, it's nice when a city has something like that, that I think is so well known. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, your your path from there to Atlanta, where you took this Olympic stadium from the 96 Olympics, and then you turned that into a ballpark, um, you know, I, I think is just pretty incredible. So I remember so much talk about what was going to happen um, with that little, with that Olympic site. And you had some interesting challenges with that based on how it was set up, correct? Well, it was, the whole project was challenging. It had a, you know, a time frame that the city of Atlanta wasn't about to let themselves miss, right? You just don't, you don't not make the Olympic deadline. Uh, and one of the few sites that was large enough for an Olympic stadium that was within the city's control was the parking lots of Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. So the biggest challenge 
that we had is ultimately the one that ended up, uh, I think, being the demise of Turner Field. And that was that it was in a location that wasn't um, able to ever develop any kind of uh, relationship or, or synergy with its neighborhood. Um, and that's, I think, if you look at baseball across the country, you would see the same kind of problem. I don't think that was unique to Atlanta. Uh, so in the um, renovation of the Olympic Stadium to Turner Field, we looked to try and take that leftover space uh, that was created by taking out the 30,000 seats after the opening, closing ceremonies and the track and field events and using that space to create some unique things at Turner Field, the Chop House, uh, the Plaza, the Braves Museum, Scouts Alley where kids could play all these games, the Coca-Cola Sky Field that looked down on the playing field. And interestingly enough, um, I think uh, if you look at the Braves' new home in Gwinnett County, you see that some of the few things from Turner Field that they took with them were those uh, those elements that were of a more communal, social um, nature, what can fans do besides watch the baseball game. Those things found a new home. And so it makes me realize that even though the park is gone, there are things about Turner Field that really um, were very memorable and, and meaningful to Braves fans. And some of that, well, you alluded to it a moment ago when you asked about the warehouse and about the details of saving that. I, I think one thing I've always tried to bring to my design team is the ability to pull together uh, the way you tell a story and the, 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 the idea of uh, having this sort of immediate sense of history, and and I would parse that by saying not not a not a created sense of not a created uh, or, or curated history, but one that's authentic and real. And so at Camden Yards, uh, whereas we use the warehouse as a reference point uh, for everything from the field dimensions, the wall in the right field, the asymmetry of the seating bowl the shape of the scoreboard, the colors. Uh, we also use those spaces uh, so that we could take, uh, we could find a place for 30 flagpoles to have each of the flags of the 30 major league baseball teams. And every every game in the 26 years that Camden Yards has been there, the ushers put those up in descending order. They're standing. Uh, the, uh, oh, the, that's funny. <laughs> the sun sign on the clock has an H and an E that lights up to denote a hit or an era. There's uh, the insignia from the 1890s uh, team on the end standard of the chairs. Uh, we brought the foul pole from Memorial Stadium downtown with us. So I, I could go on and on, but the point is we wanted to be able to tell a story. We wanted the architecture to tell a story, but not in a scripted way, just in a casual, you can find it if you want to look for it or it's just a pleasant place to be. And when we did the same kind of thing at Camden, you know, excuse me, at Turner Field, it was with an idea of, you know, what, what could make that special, what can make it work uh, for Atlanta, what could start to bring the scale of this big Olympic stadium down to something that worked for baseball. When, um, when you left Atlanta after that project and a couple of others that you completed, which, um, uh, were outside of the ballpark uh, world that you had gotten used to, but I think brought in more of your urban planning 
you went up to Boston to help Larry, um, as you mentioned, and the new ownership group. And uh, on behalf of all Red Sox fans, I would like to thank you uh, for doing that. And for those listening who are like, why are you thanking her? So, you know, one of the problems at that time was, well, do they renovate or do they get a new park? And I think anybody who has any sort of feelings uh, that are kind towards the Red Sox, think of uh, Fenway being demolished as probably the worst thing that could ever happen. So, um, you know, when it, it turned out that it was going to be renovated, I know all of us breathed a sigh of relief because that is our home. And, um, you, again, the changes that you made there, um, the renovations and the stylings are things that, you know, there's some really out in, in your face changes, you know, people can now sit on the green monster. You know, that wasn't a thing when I was growing up. I still haven't sat there yet. I have to figure that out. Um, but then, like, it's so much easier to walk around now than it was when I was younger, which is fantastic. Well, there's more space. And that, that was, you know, people often, I, and myself included, use the term renovation of Fenway. But in many ways, that was a, a, more of a planning exercise than anything else. Um you know, we the first thing we did was to go to the city of Boston and ask for permission to put turnstiles on Yawkey Way so that the street that was already closed to vehicular traffic could be used to create grill stands, uh, queuing space for taking tickets, add the retail store um, that the twins own that was already selling, you know, tons of Red Sox merchandise, make that an inside the the, the park retail outlet a retail anchor, really. Uh, so that, you know, under normal circumstances, uh, the neighborhood might have said, gee, we don't want to privatize a public street. But in this case, because it was one of the presented as one of the keys to unleashing the potential of Fenway and would be far less disruptive than building a new ballpark, uh, we got no pushback on that. And everybody um, loves you know, it. And, <laughs> And it's, it is fabulous. And then the Green Monster seats, likewise, uh, without the city of Boston's willingness uh, to allow us to lease the air rights over the Lansdowne Street sidewalk, we couldn't have built those Green Monster seats. We got permission from the Zoning Board of Appeals uh, to uh, decommission the alley between Fenway Park and the Fenway Garage uh, on on the south side so that we could take what used to be an alley and used to house a dumpster uh, sitting out sort of in the open with all the glories of uh, summer smells about, around it uh, and put that in an air-conditioned uh, environment that was adjacent to the ballpark. But take what the Red, take a piece of real estate the Red Sox already owned and make it a part of Fenway. Uh, so we were able to build the largest restrooms in uh, Major League Baseball for, for the littlest park in Major League Baseball <laughs> uh, in the big concourse. We were able to build big new concession stands that had you know, walk-in coolers and cooking equipment and a commissary. And by putting all of these things in a different place, it freed up space on the concourse that uh, was chewed up by all these, you know, literally freestanding coolers and a commissary right behind home plate and things that had grown up over time, but really didn't belong on those, those small 1912 concourses. 
so um, it, it was really a labor of love and had uh, John Henry, Tom Warner, uh, and Larry Lucchino not cared about saving Fenway, you could have continued to argue that it wouldn't happen, but they did care about it. And so uh, D'Agostino, Izzo, and Cork were brought in as our architects, and really year by year, uh, we worked to script a different set of improvements that could be done within that short four- to five-month off-season period that together over a 10-year period added up to a complete redo a Fenway Park. Yeah, I um, I love reading that it was done in stages because that's what's happening where I work <laughs> and seems to be never ending. <laughs> All of the renovations are great, but of course it's every, we're like, okay, now what are we doing this year? What are we doing this year? And it just seems to continue and I'm like, are we ever going to be done? Or maybe not. I don't know. And well, I think, but I think that it, the truth of the matter is if you look at all 30 baseball parks perhaps with the notable exception of Tampa and Oakland, who are still looking to reinvent their environment. Mm -hmm. I think even those of us who um, live in the newest and most exciting of environments are always tweaking them because things are always changing, Uh, whether it's taste in food, whether it's sponsorship opportunities, whether it's the way social media has changed, the way we use um, the park. Uh, Many of the uh, baseball parks that were built in the early 1900s were built on the model of suites being the tool for financing them. And suites aren't a, the mm-hmm. traditional suite isn't as popular anymore. So you see uh, those being converted into other uses within the parks. It's exciting to see those changes. Yeah. And for us, I mean, some of them have been made, like, were major. I mean, we got brand new video boards that were desperately needed you know things like that really big changes so you know we're they're they're all good it's just always one of those it's kind of like when you own a house I guess you're always doing something to it right yes that's Uh, exactly right (laughs) uh you know you bring up something really interesting uh about Oakland and and Tampa and since I live in Tampa you know obviously the the Ray's stadium situation is something that I keep an eye on. And I wonder what your thoughts are for some of these newer ballparks that, and I'm, um, you know, in, in the ways that they're being uh, planned out, you know, one, one of the things that you mentioned is, um, is ballparks using their space to create more social spaces so that people can gather and, and want to come there. And I think that's something that the Rays are really trying to do um, with what they just announced, which I'm sure you were all over watching because that's like your little niche. Well, those are very exciting plans that they unveiled this week. So I don't know anything more about it than, uh, than any other reader, but it was wonderfully exciting to see uh, to see their vision and to see the way populists responded to their challenge. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be, it'll be a fun, uh, it'll be fun in the community to see how, how people react and, and as they get further along with it. Um, you know, I am hoping for them that it works out in the best way possible because, well, I like baseball. So, um, I, I want to make sure that wherever I live, there's a baseball team. Uh, and I know that the trop just 
you know, it's one of those um, locations, like you mentioned before, that isn't really anchored into the community. No, but it served its purpose of bringing baseball to Tampa. So let's let's hope they find a way to 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 make that work. For sure, for sure. You've um you've been with the Dodgers now for is it six years, seven years? Yep. Um, and you know, going along with the continuous renovation, but you've had the opportunity to actually go to now the training facilities in the Dominican to to help with the planning there. Correct. That's one of my favorite projects of all time. <laughs> it was wonderful. Uh, the Dodgers were the first club to have a Dominican academy, uh, and it was uh, set up in the late 80s. Uh, but it also meant that by the time um, Stan Caston, the president and CEO of the Dodgers now, uh, uh, found himself in that position, and, as, and of course with his uh, advocacy for international players, saw the importance of that. Um, you know, by the time he got focused on it, it was one of the most run down. Being the oldest, it was also one of the most run down. And uh, so we went down there with an eye toward trying to figure out how to turn it into uh, being the best again. And after exploring everything from tearing it down and starting over uh, to a renovation, we chose the latter. And we renovated all of the original buildings that Ralph Avila and his his team under Peter O'Malley had created uh, back in the uh, late 1980s. And then uh, uh, with with the help of um, of our architects there, we were able um, to design a series of buildings that complemented that campus uh, and created an environment that is more like a, well, it's campus. Uh, and so rather than it being a series of institutional uh, buildings, uh, we were able to create something that is a series of, um, you know, of structures and open spaces and communal spaces that really holds together in a very different fashion. And what I loved about the Dodgers' approach to this was that they uh, they felt that this not only was a better solution uh, for the campus, but that it really fit with the whole uh, notion of how they wanted to bring players into the academy and teach them not just baseball, but uh, English and um, math and social skills and living on their own and time independence and time management and um, you know, when you've, when you've been at it on a scripted schedule from seven in the morning until three in the afternoon, you, you still have a, a, you know, a lot of hours of daylight left. And, um, you know, how, how, could, how could they end up using this to their advantage? And uh, Jose Melio was our architect in the Dominican who had worked on this project with us. And I think he and his, um, his team really just took a delight in the fact that we uh, so admire the the vernacular architecture and and we're looking for ways of using these outdoor rooms to be as much a part of our functional environment as the indoor rooms. Uh, and um, I've had the pleasure to stay on that campus in my later visits once we got past it being a construction stage. Um, and it, it's just so pleasant and it was just so much fun to 
think of it, um, you know, as, as I always try to with my projects as being not just about the architecture, but about the whole atmosphere. Um, and with the encouragement of Gabe Kapler, who was then head of our, um, our uh, player development, uh, we, we created uh, uh, gardens where we can have uh, organic food grown on site and always serve, you know, this, this, you know, this fresh, beautiful avocados and uh, lemons and everything else that you find there. Um, we took the, 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 the dogs that were on our property and had them all neutered or spayed and turned them into pets and sort of an attitude about how you uh, treat animals. And we got them all blue, Dodger blue water bowls and it's sort of a statement that these belong to us. And it was just so, you know, everything about it was thought through carefully um, in terms of how this complex could work uh, for helping not just player development, but human development. And uh, that's one thing I've really enjoyed about the Dodgers is this, this attitude about how you treat people um, and the respect with which I think the whole organization looks at, um, at, at baseball and its place in the community at, at every level of our organization. That, that's such a lovely um, project to get to work on, but also I'm just... You know, I, I love the amount of thought and um, conscious awareness of the impact it can have on the community at large and beyond the immediate purpose. Right. I mean, I think I think yeah. that's a, a, a good indicator of of good corporate citizenship. Uh, absolutely, and it, it comes back. You know, it's not it's not an altruistic thing. It's, it's I think we sort of are the school that what goes around comes around, and we've tried to be respectful of what communities have offered to us, and make certain that we we give that back. Um, and you know, we we feel it decades later, and you know, we we at the Dodgers still think every day about what it means to have. Um, been the team that recruited Jackie Robinson to join our ranks or to have a Fernando Valenzuela uh, redefine not just the franchise, but the city of Los Angeles at a critical moment in its, uh, in its, its life uh, and place in United States history. And, uh, you know, I hope we never stop doing those things. I, I think that's our goal is to make certain that we're always culturally aware uh, and inclusive in our approach. Oh, that it sounds so nice. And I, you know, think there are so many teams that could maybe do a little better by that. So, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I have the highest respect for your organization. Um, I've, I've met the, the general counsel there and he's delightful. Um, and well, Sam Fernandez played a big role in the Dominican facility both times. Did he? <laughs> um, but yes, but I think he was um, with literally with Peter O'Malley when they selected Campos Los Palmas as the site. Uh, and uh, so the story goes, they were driving around looking at places where they might put this academy and what land might be available. And saw these beautiful palm trees sort of in this bunch uh, on the hill. And it, but they're still there today. 
uh, but San Fernandez was very much a part of uh, of helping us uh, in everything uh, that's been done at the Dominican. And, and you're right, it was a real pleasure to work with someone who uh, had that much uh, had that much feeling and empathy for it, especially since we do, often don't think of those as being associated with uh, with the, the corner legal office. Right, right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> can tell you your profession is admired in our world. Yeah, that's... Yeah, we, uh, you know, I, I feel fortunate that the, you know, I would say almost every one of the lawyers that I have met in our industry, um, you know, it's, I, I feel happy to be included in that group. Let's say they're, they're great people. And, and again, Sam has been around for, for a couple of years. So he's got some great stories. He does. You're right. He does. Um, something that my organization and your organization have in common is, uh, you're going to laugh when I say this, um, is our difficulty in finding the correct color. So <laughs> we have this very specific red <laughs> and you guys have a very specific blue. <laughs> and it is we almost... Do. It is almost impossible to ever match it. <laughs> How many different well, blues do you have right now? Well, fortunately, Dodger blue, true Dodger blue is only one color. And we all have that PMS number memorized by heart. <laughs> but when I first went to work at Dodger Stadium, I was told that the building, which has a totally different set of colors, because the building is this 1962 uh, mid-century modern building with uh, this sort of beautiful shades of uh, light blue on the exterior, four different colors of feet, sort of like, Walter will like the sunset. That was the inspiration that Walter O'Malley had was that the colors would mimic the sunset. Uh, and um, I was told that the um, that in the building design that there were already something like eight shades of blue. And I thought, well, I am going to straighten that out. <laughs> um, and here I sit six years later, and I can tell you that now we have. 15 shades of blue. <laughs> in other words, there's no straightening it out. You know, it looks different un under different lights. It looks different on uh, different places in the building. Uh, when you uh, use Dodger blue with Dodger stadium blue, you really need to twist both colors a little bit so that they don't clash with each other. So, yep. Uh, if I wasn't a color maven before, I am now. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's funny because it's not something you really think about until you have to. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, seriously. And, and I, I actually, I've talked about this before. I remember when I was at UMass, that's where I went for undergrad. It was during the period of time where they were thinking of changing the mascot from the Minutemen to the Gray Wolves, which it was a terrible idea. And so they, they didn't do it, but part of it was playing with the colors. And even today you order two or three different things from the school store and you get two or three different maroons. And oh, that's very funny. Yeah. And so, you know, material um, takes in dye differently. So there's that, but then there's also when you're outside or underneath a fluorescent lamp, 
when it's, you know, kind of sunny versus not really sunny and making sure that people are looking at the color at the right time. We have that problem all the time. Yep. I know all those problems. <laughs> those of us at Stadium work with them daily. Yeah, uh, we have a uh, we we've got a terrific team in our our operations division uh, led by David Edford, uh, and one of our painters has been there for a number of decades. And sometimes we just have to go to Julio and say, "Is this your rent a stream, or is this?" Mm-hmm. Uh, I goodness, I can't even think of all all these different blues at the moment. But it's kind of amazing. Um, what, not not only are they so so many different ones, but the the names of them will make your head spin. It's oh sort of gosh. like a bad <laughs> trivia game. We um, last last year, our purchasing coordinator had. <laughs> it was almost like a. Um, one of those not very wide, but long um, rugs. I can't think of the name of that for whatever reason right now, but it was, it was basically PMS, different PMSs of, of red. And, um, and just, and we, they were all just off by a tiny bit, each a different number, you know, number code or whatever. And she's going, okay, which one's ours? To everyone who walked by, there were at least 80 different squares and you got 20 different answers. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and they were probably all right, too, because we all see colors differently. Yeah. I mean, and that's it, it too. So uh, when I... When I uh, read a little bit about that and saw that, I was like, oh, we have something in common. Our, our little <laughs> little color swatches. Um, one of the very... Well, one thing that I've always believed in, though, is that the building architecture wants to be its own thing and wants to be responsive to the site that it's in. And the team, the team colors and their logo and the presentation of the team itself isn't necessarily the building. You know, every now and then you find some crossover, like the Red Sox mascot, Wally, uh, is a Larry Cancro-inspired idea of naming this creature after the green the wall, the green monster And wall. now Sally. Don't um, forget Sally, his kid's sister. <laughs> <laughs> but the, um, you know, but for the most part, I don't think you want your architecture to be your team colors. And uh, I'm not sure you want to wear your building colors, you know. So uh, I think there is a difference, a a real difference. And every now and then I get asked to opine on uh, things that are team related. When I'm lucky, they're things like the World Series rings, but you can't (laughs) count on that every year. And yet sometimes I think it's okay for the team stuff to be a little kitschy, right? You just want to have fun with it. It's meant to be somewhat ephemeral. It's meant to have... um, to be of the moment, whereas you want your building to be long lasting and to reflect uh, stability uh, and uh, ability to transcend generations. And I think, you you know, you referred to um, Fenway Park as a cathedral. And we that we think of our baseball parks, you know, the famous best book, Green Cathedrals, is aptly named. We think of baseball parks as green cathedrals. Uh, and as, as well, we should, you know, it's, it's nice to think that they have a meaning beyond 
uh, sports. And I think uh, those of us in baseball like to think that baseball has a meaning beyond sports, too, that it has a real place in our country's history. Uh, I, I was just at the um, at the Smithsonian this week uh, as a part of you know, visiting Washington for the All-Star Game, and I was um, struck at how many times sports are used to tell our stories. Uh, and uh, you know, and maybe one of the most powerful is at the uh, the Museum of African American History, and uh, you know what what it means to use sports as um, as the, some of the most significant moments uh, in, in our nation's history, and the role that African Americans have made in in, in making it great. Uh, so we could be all over the place in this conversation. No, but I, think, I, I guess it's just to say that we really um, want to do more than just uh, present a game at a time. We, we, we're, we're looking to have a place uh, in, in history and one that's crafted out of a real belief that uh, it's a good way for Americans to come together and to uh, celebrate, uh, you know, the, the best of America, including our international qualities. I, yeah, I, I fully agree. And I, I kind of, I kind of get mad when people say keep, politics out of my sports right because sports is inherently political i think based on you know its ability to bring about change in in positive ways for society and um you know how many of us really fell in love with sports because of that first ball game that we went to or i have a uh one of our prior guests is a a journalist and writer and and for her baseball was how she really dealt with depression and anxiety and and how she got through a really dark period in her life and so it connects on so many different levels the sport does and i don't know i was struck when the red sox won the world series in 2004 for the first time in, um, I think, what was it, 86 years, and how many letters we got, I mean letters, not emails, Mm -hmm. but how many letters we got and what a high percentage of them had in the first paragraph something about first baseball game with fill-in-the-blank, a mother, a father, a grandmother, a grandfather, an uncle, a best friend, a coach, a teacher, a someone meaningful in their life, you know, that it, it made you realize what an important forum it is for that kind of bonding. And, and conversely, how often we use baseball as a place for that bonding. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think this is a good place to wrap up. I'm going to ask you my parting question that I ask people, which is, how or what do you do by way of self-care? Oh, my. <laughs> I'm terrible at that. I had um, a feeling because I, I feel like you're one of those work all-nighters. I am one of those work all-nighters. But, <laughs> you know, I try really hard to um, find time to take a run. And sometimes when I'm uh, the busiest and I think I really do not have time for this are the times that I know I need it the most because I often come back 
uh, clear-headed and with an idea that would have never come to me had I been on the phone, been at the computer, thumbing through papers. You know, it only came to me because I had nothing but my thoughts and my head and maybe a little bit of music in my ear. Um, and I think it's an important reminder that, uh, that, that, that you do need time for yourself uh, and you do need time to think. And I, I do fear that so much of um, my workaday life these days is on the phone or responding to emails or organizing meetings that some of the time that we used to have just to think and be creative, Mm -hmm. uh, we feel is wasted time because it's hard to measure and we shouldn't let that happen. You know, uh, there's too much good stuff still to be discovered out there and uh, just getting out to enjoy it and to look at it, I think it's important. I guess the other thing I would say about myself too is that um, maybe because I didn't come into baseball through the front door um, and I realized that what I brought to it was a set of skills and an observation that came from being in a different world. I try to use that to stay fresh. You know, if you are just looking into the mirror for ideas or and by that I don't mean so much literally as if you're only looking to other baseball parks or other sports uh, or even other gathering places for ideas, you maybe miss what people are really doing uh, with their time and how you can incorporate that uh, and create an environment that uh, helps sustain the game that we all love. I think that's so good. I just started pretty regularly running again. So I feel the the need to get out just as um, you do. And you're right. It's the days when you're like, oh, I have no time, but that's really when you need to go for sure. Yeah, that's absolutely right. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for being on. Oh, thank you, Bobby Sue. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, I'll, I'll look forward to watching the trajectory of what's happening in Tampa. Thank you all so much for listening. And thank you, thank you, Janet Marie, for being on the podcast. I really, really liked talking with her. And, you know, she has such a, I think I mentioned it, a different mind than I do. She sees things differently than I do. I think I would really like her to um, do interior design for whatever home I end up in, because I think we have similar styles. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's just, again, another example of somebody, a woman working in sport, doing something that you never would have thought, you know, was a job. And so I hope you all got something out of this. Um, Please, please, please make sure that you are rating, reviewing, and of course, subscribing to the podcast. Um, You could do it on your uh, podcatcher of choice. We're on Apple Podcasts, excuse me. Google Play, TuneIn, and Stitcher. And you can also find us on RadioInfluence.com or LTPFPod.com. And a note about that. So as I may have mentioned, my my day job life has been really crazy. So the, pot, the website has kind of gone to the side. What I'm going to be doing is um, I'm going to be putting up all of the episodes 
but I may not have the full on um, show notes that you guys are used to, the, the longer version of the show notes. I might just put the shorter version that gets put onto, you know, the, the podcast episode uh, in your podcatcher and then some links. Um, I, I want to make sure that I'm providing you guys with value and, and keeping the website current, but I, uh, I can't necessarily get all of that work done. So I'm going to let good enough be good enough and stop trying to be freaking perfect because it never works. Um, so that's a quick update on that. And then of course, please follow us on all of the social media at LTPF pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We've been doing a little bit more there. Uh, and you can email us at ltpfpod at gmail.com. I have some pretty remarkable guests coming up in the next few weeks. So if you haven't told all your friends about us, you should probably do it now because it's going to get really, really good. I hope you all have a great week. Bye now. This is an Ian Beckles flavor in your ear quick fix on Radio Influence. For those of you sports fans out there, uh, I, I find my, myself drawn to the ESPYs. I'm a sports guy. Uh, you know, the Oscars and all those Grammys and stuff, I don't really know half of the things that are being honored there, but the ESPYs all know everything that's going on. And the great Danica Patrick was the hostess this year. Um, I was very blessed to meet Danica Patrick a few years ago when I was on a Rod and Ian show. She came into the studio, kind of a slight young lady. She looked like she was five, three or so, kind of a muscular build, good, good physique. And she looked me in my eyes. She shook my hand and she, she's an imposing young lady. Like she shook my hand to let me know that I ain't no punk. I looked at her in the face and I said, please to meet you, Danica. And she was a very strong-willed person. Uh, and she did, the, she was a hostess for the, the ESPYs this year. And I thought she did a great job with the, with the jokes. Some people were clowning her saying she wasn't funny. I thought she was hilarious, personally. I mean, people can get a little too sensitive about a lot of things. I mean, joking about LeBron James's hairline, that's funny. I don't give a crap. You know, she was digging on some of the more popular athletes, and I, I, I mean, I respect that. You can find Ian Beckles' Flavor in Your Ear on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com. 